You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Good morning, everybody. Hey, good to see you. If you will, I invite you to go to Luke chapter 8 as we kick off a new series that we have entitled All is Calm, which is kind of an ironic title uh, considering that for most of us during the holiday season, life is anything but calm. Um, in fact, if you're anything like the majority of people in our society, uh, the Christmas season is a time more than you experiencing these increased feelings of hope and love and joy and peace. Uh, you experience probably more anxiety, um, more loneliness and disappointment and, and even frustration than really any other time in the year. And therefore, because this is true, um, what we want to do is we want to spend the next coming weeks talking about this in-between time that we now live in, that really the Advent season is all about, this this time in which we celebrate the first coming of Jesus and all that that means, but we also groan as we wait for the second coming of Christ where he will put all things to right. And so in light of that today, as we kick off this new series, as we think about this in-between stage, uh, I want to focus today particularly on the wound or the theme of shame. And for me, the very first time that I remember experiencing shame, uh, I was in fifth grade, and despite the fact that I felt like I was better than the majority of boys in our class when it came to basketball, I did not get picked to be on the fifth grade Oak Grove Middle School traveling basketball team. And I'll never forget walking into uh, the gym, and there uh, beside the concession stand was this white sheet of paper. It was taped up against the wall, and, and there on the sheet of paper was the list of all of the names of the boys who had been chosen, who had been picked to be on the traveling team. But what I discovered is I just went down name by name by name that I was nowhere on the list, uh, that I was one of those who actually tried out but did not get chosen to be on the team. And I remember in that moment just feeling for the first time in my life like I was a region. Yet. Like I was a loser, like I was a not good enough that just did not measure up to my friends who did make the team. And if that was not bad enough, not only did I get cut from the basketball team my fifth grade year, but it was around this same time that I realized for the first time ever that the kind of clothes that you wear uh, obviously matters. Uh, in elementary school, maybe if you're, some of you remembered, if it was like my elementary school, name brand clothes was not that big of a deal. Um, but whenever I was in middle school, I realized the difference between Tommy Hilfiger and Faded Glory was the difference between sitting at the cool kids' table or, as was often the case with me, sitting all alone, which once again led me to experiencing a deep amount of shame that, if I can be honest with you today, I still wrestle with as a 36-year-old man. And what I want you to consider this morning is when we think of shame, it's important to note that shame is not just some extreme form of guilt. Because whereas guilt focuses all on the what... Shame focuses on the who. Guilt says, I've done something bad. But shame says, I am bad. 
Uh, when you think of guilt, think about guilt like a stain on your shirt that eventually with a little hard work you can get out. But shame, in contrast, is like a disfigured face. It feels like a, a permanent part of you that actually keeps you from wanting to show your true face to those around you out of fear of them rejecting you. Uh, biblical counselor Ed Welch says it like this, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed unacceptable and unworthy of love either because of something you've done or because of something that has been done to you. And so sometimes, right, we experience shame because we've done something bad. Think Adam and Eve in the garden before they sinned and ate of the fruit God told them not to eat of. They were naked and unashamed. But once they ate of the fruit, they were naked and they experienced shame. So they covered themselves with fig leaves. So sometimes, as Welch points out, shame is the result of you doing something bad. But then other times, shame is the result of something bad that has been done to you. And so think about those who maybe have been abused, uh, whether it be physical abuse or sexual abuse or verbal abuse. Think about those who maybe have been divorced, uh, they've been cheated on or maybe bullied. And as a result, because of something bad that has been done to you, you now find yourselves filled in shame. Shame in its essence says the following, I am defective. I am damaged. I am broken. I am flawed, I am dirty, I am ugly, I am impure, I am disgusting, I am unlovable, I am weak, I am pitiful, I am insignificant, I am worthless, I am unwanted. And so when you think about guilt, guilt is an action, right? Remember, I have done bad, but shame is about your identity. No, I am bad. And therefore, because this is true, shame can oftentimes be used by others as an attempt to control us. Uh, whether it be a parent or a friend or a boss or a teacher or a coach or maybe even for some of you a church leader. Some of you may have uh, times in your life that you can point to where someone has used shame as a tool to try to fix you or to get you to do whatever they thought you needed to do. And so for some of you, maybe you remember hearing people say things like, you are so lazy, you're so stupid, right? you're such a bad Christian, you're so weak. Or you're so fat. I think of Kelly Osborne, who is the daughter of Ozzy Osborne, who after her reality show on MTV disappeared only to reemerge years later with a whole new body, whole new curves, a new color hair, a new right, wardrobe. She had lost 40 pounds. And in an interview with Kelly, a reporter asked her, hey, what was your motivation for this incredible transformation? To which she responded by saying the following, I looked in the mirror and I hated everything that I saw. I thought to myself, why don't I look like this girl or that girl? I took more criticism for being fat than I did for being an absolute raging drug addict. In other words, hey, what was your motivation for losing weight? Well, my motivation was shame. I think about this picture my mom sent me just this past week, which so much could be said about this, right? If we had the time. Um, I wish I still had those glasses because apparently they're coming back in style. Um, but when I look at this picture, you know, you can see my no-hitter ball that was there on the far left side of the picture. You see all these other trophies. And right there in the middle, the tallest trophy is the most valuable player of the league award that I won that year. And I was so proud of these accomplishments because I really worked very hard to get those awards. But what you don't realize is the reason I worked so hard was because of shame. 
Because honestly, I got tired of my friends telling me that I was a nobody because I wasn't good at sports. And so what did I do? Because of shame, I practiced every single day so that I could become the best and finally gain what I felt like was the affirmation that I desperately needed. And the reason I share that with you is just to say this. Again, shame can be a great motivator in the short term, but it is terrible in the long term. For example, in his book, The Soul of Shame, which I highly recommend, uh, Kurt Thompson says that a person living with shame will often experience, first off, a hopeless perfectionism, which means rather than you being quick to admit your failures or embrace your limitations, you will instead try to overcome your shame through your performance. Whether it be a 12-year-old in a baseball game or a 36-year-old man like today standing on the stage thinking, oh, I better perform, I better do well in order to gain the approval of others. Whether it be in the gym or in your career or at school or at home, in your parenting or your marriage, shame will often tell you that you need to overcome a obvious deficiency in you and you will do this by exceeding the expectations of others. Which Thompson points out is absolutely exhausting. Second, he says that uh, when we are stuck in shame, we experience harsh criticism because people who suffer from shame carry a deep dislike of who they are. They often become very hard on themselves and those around them. Uh, Kurt Thompson puts it like this. He says, shamed people shame people long before we're criticizing others. Think about this long before we're criticizing others. The source of that criticism has been planted, fertilized, and grown in our own lives, directed at ourselves, and often in ways we are mostly unaware of. Suffice to say that our self-judgment, the tendency to tell ourselves that we are not enough, not smart enough, not funny enough, not whatever enough, is the nidus out of which our judgment of others grows. One example I can give you of this is last year at Silver Dollar City. I was there um, with my wife and kids. My wife has been wanting to go to Silver Dollar City for years. I personally don't understand what all the hype is about. No offense, Steve. I know you guys are big fans. Um, but she wanted to go, and so we did. And, and there was this moment where um, my three kids are on the fire spotter, I think is what it's called. Um, and so you have Nora, the oldest, and then you have my two boys. At the time, they were five and one and a half. And right before the ride starts, my daughter begins to freak out. And so the person who's like running is like, oh, okay. And so you can just like some teenager or whatever, like walks over there, and it's like, you know, has to like, you know, unhook her, or un- unhook her, uh, uh, unbuckle her. There we go. Looks <laughs> so violent. It's like, I'd be scared too. Um, and so uh, unbuckle her and pulled her off the rod and she's crying. And in that moment, I just begin to shame her for her fear. I really did. And, and what I realized in that moment, the reason that I shamed her is because I saw something in her that I hate in myself, which is my own fear and my own anxiety and my own weakness, which has kept me throughout my life from experiencing the life that I felt like I should have experienced. And as a result, in that moment when my daughter, when she was too scared to ride, uh, she was met by me, not with compassion, but criticism. And the reason for that, as Thompson points out, is shamed people shame people. Out of our own criticism of self, we then begin to criticize others. Third, um, what he goes on to say, Thompson says that when we are stuck in our shame, we experience helpless feelings, which means that whenever we are living in shame, we tend to focus on worst case scenarios. We tend to construct narratives that predict a bleak and pessimistic future that says things like, I know this bad thing is going to happen. I know I'm not going to get the job. I know I'm not going to amount to anything. I know I'm not going to make the team. Because people who live in shame believe deep down inside they are the worst, 
and they deserve the worst. They therefore believe inevitably that the worst is going to happen. And there's so much more that we can say on that. But the point, again, I want to make is though shame can motivate you in the short term, it has devastating effects on you and your children in the long term. And because we are all in some way familiar with shame on one level or another, what I want to do in the remaining time that we have is I want to discover how God actually plans to lift us up out of the shame so that we can experience the life in him we were created to experience. And I want to do that by looking at Luke chapter 8 this morning. Hopefully it's there in front of you now. Luke chapter 8, uh, I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation. And um, as always, our, our, our notes are on the YouVersion Bible app, if that will help you. But I want to look at this story in Luke 8. Where we're about to be introduced to a woman who has been living in an incredible amount of shame. And my hope is, what you will see, is that because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the same thing he does for this woman is what he wants to do for you and for me. And so Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40... Here's what we read. It says, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Now I just want to stop right there and point out the fact that this woman's story actually doesn't even start with this woman, but it starts with a man named Jairus. And Jairus is a man who, despite being uh, holding one of the top positions in the city as a leader in the synagogue, and despite being a well-respected man in a culture where man, men walked very slowly and stately and they kept their emotions in check, this man throws himself at Jesus' feet. It's an incredibly humiliating act in this culture. And why does he do this? Well, verse 42 tells us, Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. I know some of you in here, you have lost children, and we grieve with you over that. Matter of fact, next week we're going to talk about grief and what to do with our grief. Some of you in here, you have nearly lost children, or you've had children that are very sick, and you know there is no feeling more helpless than when you watch your child dying. Or when you watch your child sick. I mean, you feel so out of control. And that's what's going on with this man right now. I mean, he is absolutely in crisis mode. And so he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And in verse 42, it says, As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And then a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. So now, if you notice, we're introduced to this woman And according to Luke, he says that she is a woman who has been subject to bleeding for 12 years, which is just Luke's very polite way of saying that she had an uncontrollable menstrual cycle or flow for uh, for 12 years. And what this means for this woman is not only that that therefore meant she lived in, in just this chronic pain, it not only meant that she was unable to have children, but by law, she was considered to be ceremonially unclean which means she would not be allowed by law in the first century to come in and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Uh, She literally, by law, could not touch somebody or be touched by somebody. So I want you to just think about for a moment what that would do to you psychologically and emotionally. I mean, for 12 years now, nobody has hugged this woman. 12 years. No one's held her hand. No one's put their hand on her lap or even on her shoulder and said, Hey, I'm praying for you, sister. For 12 years. I mean, this woman is the definition of an outcast. She is lonely. She is disappointed. And according to Luke, who, by the way, is not only the author of this book, but also a medical doctor by trade, the medical opinion of the day was that this woman was incurable. 
I mean, there's just no hope for her. She's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor, and what she had been told was, uh, you're never going to change. You're never going to be healed of this disease. And if that's not bad enough, notice that Luke leaves out one very important detail. We don't even know this woman's name. And, And so this woman honestly could not be any more different than Jairus. Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. This woman's not even allowed in the synagogue. Jairus was respected. This woman was rejected. Jairus is a household name. Nobody in the city even knows this woman's name. But here's the thing. Both of them desperately need Jesus. Jairus needs healing for his 12-year-old daughter, and this woman needs healing for her 12-year-old bleeding issue. And therefore, in this moment, though we have two very different people, they both, just like you and just like me, stand in need of one perfect person, and that is Jesus Christ. And by the way, just as a side note, what often keeps the Jairuses of the world from coming to Jesus is their pride. It's this feeling that I'm so strong, or I'm so cool, or I'm so popular, or I'm so educated, or I'm so wealthy that honestly, I have everything I need. And therefore, I don't need Jesus. And for the Jairuses of the world, this is why oftentimes it takes a tragedy to get their attention. It takes the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, a health scare, or something to humble them and help them realize, actually, I'm not in control, and I better turn my life over to Christ. While for those who are like this woman, oftentimes for them, it's not their pride that keeps them from Christ, but it's their shame. Because for those like this woman, it's not that they think they're too good for God, it's that they think they're too bad for God. And they think that if I actually went to God because of the stuff I've done, or the stuff that has been done to me, there's no way he could forgive me. No way that he could love me. No way that he could accept me. And if that is where you are this morning, just watch what Jesus does when this woman takes her shame to him. Look at verse 44. It says, the woman then came up behind Jesus and she touched, the word could be translated, grabbed the edge of his cloak and immediately, look at this, her bleeding stopped. Now, I wish I had more time uh, to focus on this part of the story because what's amazing here and what my Muslim friends are blown away by is how is it possible that this unclean woman was able to touch a clean and holy man and rather than her making him unclean, he made her clean. How's that possible? Like, we don't, I know, like, we read this verse and we skip through it. We're like, all right, let's go to the next one. And that's because for most of us in a Western culture, we don't understand the idea between cleanliness and uncleanliness um, when it comes to spiritual matters. And so, for example, um, you know, my Muslim friends, they feel like that godliness or that cleanliness is next to godliness. And and if you're going to be clean on the inside, they literally believe you have to be clean on the outside. Um, And and that is why whenever I went to the mosque last year with Philip Greer, I think he's in here somewhere, um, we went to the mosque together some of our Muslim friends, and they made us wash from head to toe before we could enter into the mosque. And so just imagine that. I got my skinny jeans on, and I'm trying to get them up in the faucet and the sink, and I can't even get my foot up there, right? But they're sitting there like trying to throw water on my feet to make sure that I was clean, again, from head to toe. And why is that? Because they believe that if you are unclean, an unclean person entering into a clean place will make the clean place unclean. And that, if it's confusing, you think about it in terms of sickness and health. Um, we all know, logically, that if a sick person is around a healthy person, the healthy person doesn't make the sick person healthy. The sick person makes the healthy person sick, right? 
And that is why, for example, if you have a kid that is sick, you're not sitting there thinking on Saturday night, well, I should probably take him to Crossing Kids to get around all the other healthy kids. That way those healthy kids will make my sick kid healthy, right? And if you are thinking that, by the way, um, I want to encourage you to go check out other churches in our town, okay? (laughs) And so we've got many great options in Paragold. I'd be happy to help you find one, especially during the flu season. And so um, we just know, like, logically, that does not make sense. If a, if a sick person is around a healthy person, the sick makes the healthy person sick. Same thing when it comes to clean and unclean. If an unclean person touches a clean person, typically the unclean person makes the clean person unclean. But that's not what happens here. And that is because, though you cannot see it, what scholars tell us is in this moment, Jesus took her uncleanliness and absorbed it into himself, and he transmitted into her holiness and, and wholeness and healing. And the reason that's important is that is a foreshadow of what Christ Christ did for you at the cross. In that at the cross, Jesus literally took your sin. He took your sickness. He took all that was wrong and dark in you so that when you trust in him, he transmits, he transmits back into you wholeness and healing and righteousness. So now that what is true of Jesus is true of you. Like that's the gospel and we get evidence of it just right here. Just a glimmer of it in this story. So that's what we see there in verse 44. She touches Jesus Right, or I'm sorry, in verse 45, she touches Jesus and she is healed. In verse 44, then in verse 45, Jesus asks the question, who touched me? And Jesus asks this question, not because he doesn't know who actually touched him, but what he's doing in this moment is he wants this woman just to admit her neediness. Uh, Jeff Schulte has told me before that the one thing God needs from you is your neediness. It's just to admit, I'm broken, I'm poor in spirit, I have nothing apart from you. That's what Jesus is doing here. He wants her to identify herself, to walk through her shame, right, to admit her brokenness, and not for the purpose of embarrassing her or humiliating her, but because he actually has something even more amazing for her than physical healing. And just whenever we're about to find out what that is, in this really beautiful moment, guess who steps into the picture? Peter. Like he always does. And he begins to talk without thinking. And he says to Jesus, Jesus says, who touched me? And when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding you and pressing against you. To which, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, thank you, Captain Obvious. Like, I had no idea, my little sweet Peter, that, that I was walking through a crowd and people were pressing against me. Like, that's what I would have said. But Jesus, because he is patient, because he is slow to anger, because as we talked about in that God has a name series, he is long of nostrils, right? Rather than being snarky or passive aggressive, in verse 46, he just says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then verse 47, look at this. Then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed. I love that line. Some of you think you've gone unnoticed in the room today, and I want you to know God sees you. The woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had instantly been healed. And so now here is this woman, and she's trembling because she's unable to hide. She's been exposed. She's vulnerable. Now she is standing in the middle of this crowd in front of the most famous rabbi of the day, Jesus Christ, and all eyes are on her. And I would just imagine if I was her in this moment, I would be wondering to myself, am I about to be humiliated? Am I about to be rejected again in front of all of these people? And as this was going through her mind, what happens next may be the most profound moment in the Gospels. 
Because what we see next is what happens whenever you and I stand exposed in all of our shame and all of our ugliness and all of our mess before a holy God. The woman, the unclean woman, she says, Jesus, I did it. I'm the one who touched you. I know you're a holy man. I'm the one who laid my hands on you. And in verse 48, look how Jesus responds. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Now go in peace. Not stranger. Not ma'am. He doesn't even say sister or friend. The girl that nobody wanted, Jesus calls his daughter. And what Tim Keller tells us here is this is equivalent to Jesus calling this woman his sweetheart. Which means the girl that no one would touch in this moment, she is being embraced by the creator of the world. And what's so amazing about this picture is that on the one hand, you have a dad, Jairus, who is pleading the cause of a 12-year-old daughter. But on the other hand, you have this woman who for 12 years has desperately needed a father to plead her cause. And so what does Jesus do? He pleads her cause. Rather than letting her steal this little miracle and sneak off into the night, he makes sure that she receives the one thing that is greater than physical healing because he makes sure that she receives a place in a moment where she can be fully known, belong, and beloved. As I began to think about this story this past week, it reminded me of a story I heard of a family who was in an adoption process and the adoption agency called and they said, hey, we just did some testing on your your potential unborn daughter and what we found out is that she actually has a debilitating disease. It's very severe. She'd have to live with you the rest of your life. And so we understand if you'd want to back out of the adoption process, there's no shame for that. And the woman talked to the, the director and said, yeah, like we want to back out. That's just not for us, not in this season of our life. And, and um, as the woman told the story, she said, a couple nights later, I, I fell asleep and I had a dream. And in my dream, I was in this huge coliseum and, and there was a stage. And she said, one by one, these people were filing out these beautiful children. And they would just hold up one at a time. It's just a beautiful child and say, okay, who wants this child? And hands would go up all over them. Oh, I want that one. I want that one. I want that one. And that went on for some time. And she said eventually in her dream, uh, they filed out this, this, this ugly, like deformed, like clearly like broken, like something was wrong with this child. And they, they brought this child out and they, they held the child up and said, okay, now who wants this child? And she said in her dream, like it was just silence. Like, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. And then she said, finally, after a couple just awkward moments, she heard someone behind her, a man behind her say, I'll take that one. And she said in her dream, she turned around and she realized it was Jesus. And Jesus then began to walk through the crowd. And he goes right up to this, this little girl and he picks her up and just smiles and looks at her. And she says, in my dream, I was close enough to see this child's face. And I realized that it was actually my face whenever I was a kid. And in that moment, I realized, man, if this is what Jesus did for me, how could I not do this for this other child with their disability? And I share that with you this morning, not to say that every one of you should go out and adopt special need children. Like that is the, don't, don't miss the point of the story. The point I'm just trying to make is that this is a picture of what Jesus did for this woman in Luke chapter 8. And it's a picture of what Jesus has done for you and for me. In that the Bible is clear that when Jesus took us in, spiritually speaking, we were disfigured and disdained. And rather than Jesus saying, ooh, gross, no, give me the one that looks nice, he instead adopted us into his family and made us his beloved children. 
And therefore, because this is true, you can, when this begins to seep into your heart, no matter who you are or what you have done or what has been done to you, you can, like this woman, go in peace. You can begin to experience, no matter what is going on around you, an inner calmness that is anchored in the love of God. And if you hear that this morning, there's a part of you that's like, oh, Jerry, that's great and that is beautiful, but I, I just still find myself stuck in shame. Like I still find myself just in this place of hopeless perfectionism. I still tend to be so harsh with myself and those around me. I still tend to be given over to these worst case scenarios. So, so what, what do I need to do practically? Like how do I be set free from this shame? And what I would just say is quickly two things this morning that we see in this story that will help you go from being stuck in shame to being freed from shame. And the first thing you need to see this morning is that if you want to be freed from the bondage of shame, you have to have your story heard. You have to have your story heard. The reality is, guys, listen, shame thrives in secrecy. It grows in the darkness. And therefore, if you want to overcome shame, there has to come a point where, like this woman, you come out of hiding. You step out of isolation and near into the body of Christ, into a missional community, into a DNA where you can, like this woman, be fully known, belong, and be loved. And listen, I know as I'm saying that, some of you are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're saying like, Jared, you just don't know my story. I mean, I'm so busy. I mean, I understand like, this. This is hard to do to live in community. It is hard to do. This is not easy. And it's not easy because, listen, if you're experiencing shame right now, you know why you're experiencing it? Because you've been rejected. And so everything inside of you right now says, why would I step into another relationship where I have to run the risk of once again being rejected and humiliated? So I get it. Like This is not easy. But what you have to hear today is though it is in your relationships that you were hurt, it is only in relationship that you can be healed. This is why Kurt Thompson, again, in his book, The Soul of Shame, says the following. It is crucial to note from the outset, that shame is a neurophysiological phenomenon that is not bad in and of itself. It is actually our system's way of warning of possible impending abandonment. Our problem is that we tend to get stuck in our shame and as a result move away from relationships rather than towards them, all while experiencing within our minds a similar phenomenon of internal disintegration. If you were with us last week, you remember us talking about disintegration, how it literally means you begin to fall apart. Shame, he goes on to say, undergirds other effective states because of its relationship to being left. And to be an abandoned ultimately is to be in hell. This terror of being left alone drives my shame-based behavior and ironically takes me to the very place I most fear going, to the hell of absolute isolation. This is why one of the first and most helpful steps in combating shame is creating communities around us who are reminding us of the same thing Jesus heard in his baptism, that this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. In light of this, this is why as pastors, we are so passionate about trying to create a culture in our church where this can be a safe place for you to bring your best and biggest sins and know they're not going to be held against you. That's why we're so passionate about trying to make this a place where it really is okay to not be okay. It's not okay to want to stay there, but it's okay to not be okay. We want to make this a place where your mistakes and failures don't have to ruin you. 
I think of that famous line from Brennan Manning who once said, the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital bed for sinners. Guys, the church is not a place for those who have it all together. But rather the church is for broken and sick and weak, 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 there we go, weak people to come and get the healing that they desperately long for. And again, as pastors, we are doing everything we can to try to create this culture for you. Um, But you just need to know you're not going to experience it if this is the extent of church for you. I'm all about Sunday morning. I spend probably 15 hours a week working on a sermon like this one right here. The band stuff, like, like this is very important. We put a lot of time into this. But this alone is not enough to help you combat your shame. You need to step into community and you need to take the risk of sharing your story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and know that when you do, in a safe environment, when you are met with the kindness and compassion of Jesus, you can have your life transformed. Secondly, and finally, what I would say is if you want to get unstuck, you not only need to have your story heard, but you need to have your head lifted. And this story, while the woman is still looking down in shame, Jesus says to her, daughter. And in that moment when he says daughter, what is he doing? He's lifting her head off of herself and onto him. So that whenever she stops focusing so much on her circumstances and instead she focuses on Christ, she begins to receive this whole new identity that is spoken over her. This identity that says you are a beloved child. This identity that says I delight in you. You are special and there is nothing you can do to ever be separated from me. You belong to me no matter what. This is the identity that radically transforms this woman and it has the power to transform you. And that is why, listen, that is why, listen, the devil will do everything he can to make this message go in one ear and out the other. I do not care how regular you are in practicing the spiritual disciplines or how active you hear or how active you are here on Sunday mornings. I don't care if you have the whole Bible memorized. If you cannot truly believe that you are a beloved son or daughter of God, nothing else matters. It's just not going to work. And that is why we see in Matthew 4 that whenever Jesus is beginning his ministry, what does the devil attack? Jesus' identity. If you really are the Son of God. If you really are the Son of God. If you really are the Son of God. What the devil wants more than anything is to convince you you are not a beloved son or daughter of God. This is why David Seaman says this, Satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut-level feeling of inferiority, inadequacy, and low self-worth. This feeling shackles many Christians in spite of wonderful spiritual experiences and a knowledge of God's Word. Although they understand their position as sons and daughters of God, so they get it in their head. Yeah, I get what you're saying this morning, Jared. I heard it before. Although they understand their position as sons and daughters of God, They are tied up in knots and they are bound by a terrible feeling of inferiority and chained to a deep sense of worthlessness. I wonder as we end this morning, do some of you feel chained to a sense of worthlessness? For some of you, if you can be honest, Satan has set a trap of self-rejection that you have fallen right into. For some of you this morning, the devil has convinced you that God has forgotten you that he has overlooked you, that he has abandoned you, he has convinced you that you are unwanted or that you have gone way too far. And what I want to encourage you to do this morning, if that is true of you, is to lift your head to Jesus. 
I want to encourage you this morning to lift and look at Jesus. And whenever the devil begins to come at you with accusations, he's the great accuser. And he begins to come at you with his accusations. And he begins to mess with you and feed you lies. You say to him, I am not what you say I am. And I'm not what others say I am. I am not even what I say I am. I am not what anybody else did to me. I am not defective. I am not damaged. I am not broken or flawed or dirty or ugly or impure. I am not disgusting. I am not unlovable. I'm not weak. I'm not pitiful. I'm not insignificant. I'm not worthless. And I'm definitely not unwanted. Rather, I am who Christ says I am. I am forgiven. I am free. I am redeemed. I am healed. I am brand new. I am chosen. I am changed. I'm blessed. I'm complete. I am a beloved child of God. That's what's true about you. You are not what others have done to you. You're not. You're not what you've done or have not done. You're not what others have said about you, and you're certainly not the voices that are whispering inside of your head. You are what Christ has declared over you. And so today... Listen to his voice. Listen to his voice. Hear him speak love over you. You are my son. I'm so proud of you. Oh, I love you. You are my daughter. I see you. You matter to me. I'm crazy about you. Hear that. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, to fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. At the cross, you know what Jesus did for you? He took your shame. And then in his resurrection, he threw your shame off like a filthy rag. And he threw a royal robe of righteousness, not only around himself, but around every single one of you who have put your trust and your faith in him. So that now when God looks at you, you know what he sees? Perfection. Perfection. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than he does right now. He loves you perfectly, just as you are if you are in Christ. And so this morning, if you've trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as you come and you take of communion, as we tear off the piece of bread and we dip it in the juice, which represents the body and the blood of Christ, listen, consider the shame. Consider the shame that comes from your darkest moments. Consider the shame that comes from your failure and your sins. But more than that, listen and we're done. Remember Jesus' amazing love for you. And how he has freed you from the humiliation and the failure that has defined you. His victory has become your victory. His life has become your life. His identity has become your identity. You are a beloved child of God. That being said, I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as the band comes forward. And I want to pray for us. And I just want to make sure there's instructions on communion. I know some of you are new this morning and this might be a little bit different to you. And so every week we partake of communion and we have two stations here in the front. We have two stations in the back. There's a gluten-free option for you in my back left, your back right, if that interests you. 
And what we want to do is, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then the band's going to lead us in one more song, which is, by the way, band, an incredible song as a follow-up to the sermon. Thank you for playing it. Um, but as you come and take of communion, tear off a piece of bread, just dip it in the juice, and be reminded again that, yeah, you have done some pretty awful things, and some pretty awful things have been done to you, but none of that defines you anymore. You're defined by Christ and what he's accomplished for you on the cross. And so remember that as you tear off the bread and dip in the juice, that you are forgiven, you are free, you are redeemed, you have been washed clean. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, um, I just want to tell you there's not many closed doors to you here in our church. This is a closed door to you. And the reason why is not because we don't love you, but it's actually we have something better for you than this. This bread and this juice, by taking it, you're not going to have your sins forgiven. God's not going to love you more. Um, you're not going to have some unanswered prayer answered. Um, for us, the reason we take it because it's a symbol of hope. For you, it's bread and juice from Walmart. Okay, That's all it is. And so we want something greater for you. Rather than partaking of this, partake of Jesus Christ. And if you want more information about what that looks like to truly surrender your life to Jesus, I'll be up here in the front. So will Adam. Lose a couple rolls back. We'd love to talk to you about next steps. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that right now through your Holy Spirit that you would please uh, capture the hearts of each person in this room. Because of the things that some have done or things that have been done to them. I know in a room this size there are people who are walking in an incredible amount of shame today and enslaved to that. They're having a hard time believing that you see them and that you love them. They feel as if they're almost an island or they're going through this life by themselves. And I, I just pray that, that God, right now through your Holy Spirit, this last song and through communion, that you would lift all of our eyes to you, that we would behold your beauty and feel your love spoken over us in a fresh and new way. It's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen.